Good morning, everyone. God's love is so amazing. And we have been celebrating, really, this Christmas time, rejoicing in what God does. We have seen over the past few weeks that God orchestrates his plan, that God comforts his people, and today we're going to see that God rescues his people. Now, the most dramatic rescue I can remember happened on October 14, 1987. 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell into a well on her aunt's backyard in Midland, Texas, and she was stuck in an 8-inch Mine, um, not mine shaft, a, a well casing, 22 feet underground. And it was big news back then, and uh, baby Jessica, as she was called at the time, was rescued. And workers had to work 58 straight hours to get her out. Her parents were ecstatic, obviously, because she had been rescued. Today we're looking at the fact that God rescues his people. Psalm 68:20 says, Our God is a God of salvation. To God the Lord belong deliverances from death. And we see one such rescue today in Acts chapter 23. I want to ask you to open up your Bibles there and stand with me. I'm going to read Acts 23 verses 12 through 35. This is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. And he has given it to us. When it was day, the Jews made a plot bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand Going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would, would change us, would, would rearrange our hearts in ways that only you can do. Lord, we pray you would have your way with us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So over the past two Sundays, we have seen that God orchestrates his sovereign plan, and we see that God comforts his people with his presence and his promises. Comforts his people via the presence of Christ and his Holy Spirit applied word. Today we're going to see that God rescues his people so that they may be free to use, to be used for his purposes. Here is Paul being hunted down, being tracked down by the Jews. They're plotting to snuff out his life. And it's similar to what happened when Jesus was born, when Herod was trying to kill Jesus and killed all the babies in that area because he hated Jesus. The important transition verse is verse 11 of chapter 23, where Paul has escaped death three times at this point. He preached the Messiah that the Jews rejected, and so at this point in time, he is sitting alone in the barracks. He is dejected. He is alone. He is, he is downcast. He is sad. And Jesus himself comes and cheers him up. Jesus himself, look at Chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus says to Paul in person, take courage, literally don't be afraid, take heart, be encouraged. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must do also in Rome. So Jesus is, is giving him this, this encouragement, this assurance. Now remember when, when Mary uh, got all the news about who her son is and what he would do. Remember how he, she pondered those things in her heart? She treasured them in her heart. This is a great verse for us to ponder, a great ver verse for us to treasure, not just at Christmas time, but really all through the year. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to keep preaching through the book of Acts over Christmas is, is to show that the things that God is doing and the things he did at Christ's birth are the, are the same things that are part of his grand plan of, of redemption and that it isn't just celebrating a baby, but we are celebrating the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the current exaltation of Christ at the right hand of the throne of God, and we are anticipating his imminent return. And so Christmas ought to be celebrated all year long as we acknowledge Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, exaltation, and look forward to his return. This is a great verse for us to ponder, though, as we go through Christmas or all year long, because think about it. If you're a believer and you're going through some hardship, you're going through some challenge, and maybe you don't see any clear-cut way out, and you know you're going through this and you know you're, you're being tested, 
This is a great verse to ponder because God is basically saying, I know what you're going through. I've got all of this under control. I, I know what's going on, so don't despair. I, I've got it under control. I'm with you. It's like Isaiah 41.10, which God has used many times in my life to comfort me. Fear not, he says, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. And what God is saying is, I'm all powerful. I've got this. So in your trial, you can, like Paul, continue to be Christ's witness. That you can continue, even in the midst of your pain, in the midst of the upheaval that's going on in your life, you can, like, like Jesus said to Paul, keep testifying about the facts about me. Keep testifying to the gospel facts. And you can do that in your own heart, you can do that in your own home, you can do that in the household of God, and really to any hemisphere he, he leads you. We've got teams going out to Southeast Asia, we've got people going out to Mexico, we've got people staying right here, and in the midst of whatever you're doing, keep testifying to the facts about Jesus. In the midst of whatever you're going through, keep testifying to the facts about Christ. As we get into this passage, I want you to see really three parts of it. First, we see a sinister plot, and then we see a sensitive relative, and then we see a sovereign rescue. Now, I want to mention that, and you probably noticed as I read this, this is a straight narrative, but this narrative has nothing in it about the Holy Spirit. Not one word about the Holy Spirit. Not, wor not one word about redemption. Not one word about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Nothing practical for doctrinal instruction in Christian living. God's name is not mentioned in this passage, much like the, the, the book of Esther in the Old Testament. There are no commands here. There are no instructions to holiness. There are no theological references. And we must remember 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and what? Profitable. Profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness. That we would be adequate and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so this passage of scripture is profitable. And although it does not talk about Jesus and about what God is doing, it shows us what God is doing. If you think about it, just remember this. Where is this located? Right here in the book of Acts. And it's based upon everything that comes before it and everything that comes after. As I studied this passage and I came to the conclusion that this is one of the most clear-cut illustrations, one of the most graphic illustrations of God's providential rescue of his people in all of Scripture. Now, what he is doing here, without even being mentioned, is providentially, supernaturally using the natural world to work his will. Now, a lot of people say, I, I want to see a miracle. Well, you can look in the mirror right now and see a miracle because even now I'm looking at miracles and what God has done and you're looking at me and saying, wow, God did a miracle because all of us went to bed last night. Hopefully you slept through the night. Unless you have you know, young babies and maybe you're not sleeping through the night or someone is sick at your house, like at my house, and maybe you're not sleeping through the night. But you slept and, and, and you, you weren't keeping yourself alive. You woke up this morning, you were still breathing, your heart was still beating. That's a miracle. God does that. Does that day after day after day. Miracles are where, where God invades the natural world to do wonders. 
In fact, miracles are where God violates the natural world to invade it supernaturally. But we're talking here about the providence of God. The providence of God is where he uses daily life to do his will. This is what he's doing here in this passage. He is providentially acting through the events that transpire. Harry Ironside said this, God is never nearer than when we cannot see his face. God's name isn't mentioned in this passage, but the circumstances are woven together in such a way to accomplish his will behind the scenes. I want to call your attention first to the sinister plot Verses 12 through 15. The sinister plot. Verse 12 tells us that the Jews hatch a plan to, to snuff out Paul's life. They bind themselves by an oath to not eat or drink until they kill him. Literally, it means they anathematize themselves to an anathema. They devoted themselves to destruction. They invoked the judgment of God upon themselves. They basically are saying, so may God do to us and more if we don't kill Paul. And Jesus warned about making these kinds of oaths and swearing these kinds of oaths. And there are more than 40 of them conspiring together. Verse 13 tells us, this is fanaticism. They had pledged not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They, they had misused scripture. They had misunderstood God. And, and you need to understand, you need to grasp that there will always be fanatics. Taking maybe even snippets of scripture and, and turning it into a whole other religion. The Jews did it. The Mormons do it. The Jehovah's Witnesses do it. The Muslims do it. The Buddhists do it. Humanists do it. There will always be enemies to the cross of Christ. There are oaths and empires built on false teaching. In the day we are living now, we have radical terrorists blowing people up, innocent women and children and themselves, thinking that they are doing what is right while they are absolutely doing what is wrong. Verse 14 tells us they go to their religious leaders and they say this, we are not going to eat or drink till we kill Paul. They hated Jesus and Christians so much they're willing to die of starvation. Now, I don't think they kept that oath. I think they were... they. Uh, once they realized they didn't kill Paul, they still kept living. They still kept eating their three squares a day. But they, they say to the council, verse 15, they say, you have the tribune bring him to you. Pretend it's about his trial. And, and we're going to kill him before he gets there. Why are they so hostile? Why are they so violent? It's very clear they are they are pawns of Satan. They are under the power of Satan. And Satan wanted Jesus and the gospel done away with, just like he tried to have Herod kill all the babies, just like he tries to corrupt your life so that you don't have a voice for the gospel anymore. This is a sinister, satanic plot. And next I want you to see a sensitive relative that pops onto the scene. Verses 16 and through 22 you know, we don't hear a lot about Paul's family, and this is one of the only times we hear something. Verse 16, Paul's nephew, you know, shows up on the grid. He, he hears about the ambush plan, and he goes into the barracks and tells Paul. Paul Paul's able to take visitors. Remember, he's not under, under lock and chain here. He is basically able to, to operate on a daily basis. He's under protective custody. Custody. He's under the witness protection program, if you will. And, and his nephew 
is there. And not only that, his nephew hears about the plot against his life. Why is his nephew there? Was he there for his education? Was he there because his family is there? Was, his, was Paul's sister there and they were taking care of Paul? We don't know. Only God knows. We don't know if this nephew was a believer or not. But what we do know is that he was present and he was able to hear about a plan that was a stealth plan to murder Paul. And God orchestrated providentially to have that boy around the conspirators. And he was a boy. They took him by the hand. It says that he was young. Verse 17, Paul calls one of the centurions. He's like, hey, take this young man to the tribune. He's got something to say. So they take him by the hand, again, showing that he's young, and he brings him to the tribune. And, and, and what's said is this. Paul, the prisoner, asked me to bring this young man to you. Paul, the prisoner, from now on until he dies. But he's a prisoner of Christ. He is a prisoner of, of no government. He's a prisoner of Christ. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. And so the tribune takes this boy aside privately, verse 19, and verse 20 he, he just spits out the story. The tribune asks, what's up? And he, he spits it out. And then he makes a bold move, verse 21. He tells, he tells him, do not be persuaded by them. There are more than 40 that are lying in wait, and they're not going to stop until they kill Paul. And they're waiting for your permission. Verse 22, it's good news for Paul's life because the tribune isn't going to go along with the plan. He sends Paul's nephew out and he says, don't tell anyone about this. Praise God for sensitive relatives. And now I want you to see the sovereign rescue. Verses 23 to 35. So the tribune calls two centurions. They're in charge of 100 soldiers each and says, get 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. They're leaving under the cloak of darkness, 9 p.m., 470 heavily armed soldiers to get Paul out of town. So it looks like he's getting bumped up to first class. They're not kicking him out of town. They are escorting him under their protection out of town. Verse 24, give him a horse too. Bring him safely to Felix the governor. And verse 25, he writes a letter, and uh, the Greek tells us that he actually has the exact wording of the letter. And he basically retells the story, but he, he kind of twists the facts a bit, to probably to pad his resume, kind of lies a little bit. Verse 26, he starts out, Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the tribune, to most excellent governor Felix. Felix was the governor, he was not most excellent he was a freed slave who, one writer said, ruled as king with the mind of a slave. And he killed many Jews. He was horrible. He was ungodly. He writes to him, most excellent Governor Felix, greetings. He says, verse 27, this man was taken by the Jews to be killed by them, but I rescued him. I learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now he's twisting the facts. He's lying to pat his resume. He learns that Paul's a Roman citizen after he rescues him from the murderous mob. And he also fails to mention that he had Paul stretched out to be flogged and beat him to a bloody pulp. Kind of leave, left that out. Verse 28, you know, I wanted, you, I wanted to know about why they were accusing him, so I brought him before the council, their council, the 70, the Sanhedrin. And I found out, verse 29, that he's innocent. He, he's not 
He's not deserving death or imprisonment here. And so, verse 30, when I left, when I heard about this, I, I, I sent him to you immediately. And I ordered his accusers to come and, and tell what they have against him. Being fair, because Paul's life was now protected. They realize he's a Roman citizen. He deserves protection from Rome. And so, verse 31, the soldiers take him by night to Antipatris, which is 35 miles away. And they're, all, they're like almost a little bit more than halfway from Caesarea, and they push through the night. This is a forced march, and they are going to get him there safely. And then, basically, the horsemen, the 200, the, the 200 go on with him, but the 270 go home. The reason why is because they're now out of Jewish territory. They're now in Gentile territory, where it would have been safer for Paul there. And so they come to Caesarea, verse 33, they deliver the letter to the governor, and they, they put Paul in front of the governor. And the governor's reading the letter, verse 34, and then he asks him, and he learns that he's from Cilicia, and he tells him in verse 35, I am going to hear your case when your accusers come. And then he says something very significant, that he had him guarded in Herod's praetorium, basically put him in the palace. This was the judgment hall. This is where Felix is living, this is Herod's palace. The Herod who was struck down by God in Acts chapter 12 because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms. And they basically, after he dies, say, we're taking his palace. Felix, you want to live there? He has a room in the palace. I'm sure he's sitting there in that room praising God for his rescue, awaiting that trial. And what you see is that God has providentially orchestrated this circumstance for his sovereign purposes, because he'd already been promised that he is going to Rome. He will testify to the facts about Jesus in Rome. So what does God do? Providentially foils the sinister plot, brings about a sovereign rescue. Now recall with me why Paul was there, how he got there. There was huge evil opposition to the gospel. He was speaking to the Sanhedrin in his own defense of his personal integrity, but most importantly, overall, he is professing faith in the crucified, risen, exalted Jesus Christ. You see that in Acts 23, 6. He states the resurrection, and he pinpoints the cause of his conversion from being a persecutor and hater of the church now to being a follower of Jesus, and the Jews couldn't deal with it. Here was one of their own that basically you know, switched teams and, and they didn't like it. Some were becoming believers, but many, especially these 40, hated him and wanted to kill him. And the fundamental conviction that Paul had is that Jesus saves and that they needed to yield to his lordship. And God is orchestrating his plan, comforts Paul in the process, and in the midst of a sinister plot against Paul's life, he sends this sensitive relative, the nephew of Paul, and provides this, this sovereign rescue. Paul's life was in danger and God had other plans for him. But I want you to think with me for a moment, especially if you're a believer in Jesus. Why did we need rescue? Why did we need Jesus? Very simply, we were dead in our sins, we were under the wrath of God, and if you're a believer today, God had other plans for your life other than hell. If you're not a believer today, then, then you need to listen up to what I say because I hope that as we go through this, you say, well, that's what I want. I want what believers have. 
See, this is what, what God was doing in the birth of Christ. Satan had hatched a sinister plot to hold people captive in sin. Jesus is our sensitive relative, our, as the Bible puts it, our older brother, our kinsman redeemer, uh, through whom God enacts the sovereign rescue. Through the shed blood of Christ on the cross, this plan was settled before the world began. Galatians 4.4 tells us that it was, it was really accelerated in the fullness of time, which led to a manger cradle at his birth, and then led to a bloody cross in his death, and then a crown in his present exaltation at the right hand of God, where we know he is interceding for us, he is praying for us, according to the will of God. And we anticipate his imminent return. And what we see in this passage is this dramatic, providentially orchestrated rescue right here in Acts. But I wanna draw your attention to several aspects of God's rescue of believers, those who are in Christ. First, I wanna call to your attention that if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, you have been rescued from Satan and his sinister plot to steal, kill, and destroy. Colossians 2, Paul says this, verses 13 through 15. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all of your trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. And he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. He triumphed over Satan and all his minions. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 say that, says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ, likewise partook of the same things. That through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Very clear. Jesus destroyed the devil. And through that can deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 2 Timothy 2 tells us that those who are outside of Christ have been held captive by Satan to do his will. 1 John 3.8 tells us very clearly the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if you're in Christ today, you've been freed, you've been rescued, you've been delivered from Satan. I think we ought to see the appearance of Christ in the fullness of time as really a second exodus. God rescuing his people from evil, just like he did early on. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, in the scene of the, 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 uh, the burning bush and Moses the Lord says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. God is saying this. I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them up to that land that is good and broad and a land of milk and honey. Jesus came down to rescue us from Satan's stranglehold. You know the Christmas song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen? I believe that's gonna be applied to everyone here. Here's how it goes. 
God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you've been rescued from Satan. Secondly, if you're a Christian today, you have been rescued from sin that you were born in, that you were enslaved to, and you were condemned by. The prophets had foretold for years that Messiah would bring salvation, and the angel appears to Joseph, saying, Matthew 1, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He, basically, he will live up to his name, Yahweh saves. Paul himself, 1 Timothy 1.15, said this is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, I'm the worst of all. I'm I'm struck and saddened uh, sometimes when I come across someone who's a professing believer who seems to have no pulse when it comes to the depth of their sinful depravity. In, in fact, if you, if you have no you know, awareness or acknowledgement of the depth of your sin, you might not be saved. Total depravity is what it's called, and that necessitates a radical rescue. And you notice I didn't say utter depravity. There's a difference between utter depravity and total depravity. Utter depravity is where you are as bad as you could ever be, and no one is because you can still do worse. So total depravity means you are so bad, you will go to hell for your sins unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's what total depravity means, that mankind isn't as bad as he could be, but bad enough to go to hell for his sins unless he believes in Christ. And total depravity leads people to act in total disregard of human life. It was Herod's total depravity that led him to slaughter all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area who were two years old and younger at the time of Christ's birth, in the days of Christ's birth. What makes Herod's act even more heinous is that he targeted the sinless, sovereign Savior as his primary victim. But he couldn't kill the Son of God because God had other plans. It had been foreordained before the foundation of the world. The Father had predestined Christ to die as a bloody sacrifice at the cross. So Satan had hatched a sinister plan even against Jesus, but God had other plans. And I'll just remind you that total depravity still leads people today to act in total disregard of human life. like the 40s saying they wouldn't eat until they killed Paul. Who did they want the permission to kill Paul from? Fellow humans. Fellow humans. They wanted permission from fellow humans to do unthinkable evil. Just like Americans have killed almost 60 million babies via abortion since Roe v. Wade in 1973. And and where did they get the permission? Well, it's legal. I have permission from fellow humans to to take innocent life. All we can say is God have mercy on us. Whether we devalue human life by by trashing someone verbally or treating them less than or by killing human life. 
And we've got to remember that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. If you're in Christ, you've been saved from your sin. I grew up in L.A. County, and my dad was a sergeant in the Los Angeles Police Department, and so often we would go into downtown L.A. And I remember as a kid, seeing atop a building, which I found out much later was the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, there were these two huge neon signs, and they both had the same two words. One was pointing in one direction, one was pointing in the other. Jesus saves. And I remember thinking as a kid, that is odd, but also thinking no one made them take that down. And I saw it over and over again for years and didn't really grasp it at all until I became a believer. And now those two words, Jesus saves, mean everything to me, mean eternity to me, and ought to to you if you're a believer in Christ. There's only one way of salvation. Acts 4.12 makes it very clear. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Christ. The angels told the shepherds, today in the city of David, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's Jesus rescues from sin. If you're a believer today, you've been, you've been rescued from Satan, you've been rescued from sin. And also you've been rescued from hell. From hell itself. Some people want to say, well, it's not really a real place. Oh, yes, it is. And it's the eternal place of all who die without Christ. What did Paul say? Galatians 1.4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God. There is no other Savior. And aren't you glad that God doesn't say, maybe what we're tempted to say to our own kids at times, you know, you got yourself into this mess, you'll have to get yourself out. God doesn't say, you, you made your bed, now you got to sleep in it. God doesn't say, rescue yourself. There's a rescue that happened in 2003 that every time I hear about it, it makes me shudder. Aaron Lee Ralston rescued himself. He was trapped in southeastern, southeastern Utah, 19, excuse me, 2003, by an immovable boulder. And his arm is trapped. And he rescued himself by amputating his right forearm with a dull pocket knife. He was able to do it. Spiritually speaking, we cannot rescue ourselves. There's no way out. Ever been in a situation where you're like, um, this is beyond my control, I don't see a real way out. I'm in an airplane or an elevator at a family gathering I don't want to be at or something. But, you know, you usually have some hope of rescue, some hope of escape, right? How about 2010 in Chile? Remember the 33 miners that were trapped 2,300 feet underground? Well, that seems like they're going to die, right, Under, against all odds. Well, it took 69 days, but they all were rescued. Not so when it comes to hell. No escape route and no one able to rescue anyone out of God's hand. Because when someone is in hell, they have fallen into the hands of the living God. They have condemned themselves by their own sin and their own rejection of Christ. But Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill your soul. No, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus himself said, look, 
I did not come into the world, John 3, 17, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world would be saved through me. But he says the one that is condemned is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the only begotten Son of God. Those who are condemned in hell are, are, have condemned themselves. The psalmist was really clear about it. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. The ransom of their life is costly. It can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. There is no means of rescue or relief in hell. There is no way out ever. Those in hell are sealed in their damnation. Revelation 22.11 tells us that. Friends and family can't get them out. And God will not help because the time for mercy has passed. At that point, Hebrews 9.22 tells us very clearly, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So apart from faith in Christ before death, no rescue from hell. But in Christ, in Christ there is blessed assurance of rescue. Now there are professing believers who who lack that assurance of rescue in Christ. You gotta ask why. Well, first of all, maybe you're professing to be a believer, but you don't have faith in Christ. And you can't have assurance of something you don't have. If that's you, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he died in your place on the cross. Believe that he was buried. Believe that he was risen. Believe that he's coming again. Let's say you are a believer. Here's one reason why you might not have assurance. This might surprise you. Because maybe you've never been baptized. You're like, whoa, whoa. I don't have to be baptized. Well, let's just read what Jesus said. Let's just read what Jesus said. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Well, people, believers all over are saying, we're all about the Great Commission, right? Let's see what it says. Jesus says, go and make what? Disciples. And then do what to them? baptize them, and what? Teach them to obey all that I commanded you. What's the first thing he commands here? Go and make disciples and baptize them. So if you're a believer in Jesus and you refuse to be baptized, you are directly disobeying the revealed will of God for you in the word of God. So maybe you don't have assurance because you've never taken that first step of discipleship. Baptism doesn't save you, but Jesus says that those who obey me belong to me. You can make that right. We're going to have a baptism on January 29th. But there's also a third reason why you might lack assurance. Maybe there is a sin in your life that is clouding and choking and confusing you. And if that's the case in your life, then confess it and repent of it and forsake it and walk in the victory that you have in Christ. Don't stay in that state God wants you to have full assurance of salvation. Which leads us to one more thing, which hits us right where we live. A fourth aspect of God's rescue of believers, that God can rescue us from temptation. For us, the temptation might be to give in or give up in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Some professing believers aren't battling the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they just give in all the time. Paul didn't. I love Paul's attitude. Here he had Jesus' assurance of deliverance and rescue from the evil plots of the Jews, chapter 23, verse 11, but he was at the same time actively involved 
in escaping the dangerous situation. He tells his nephew, you go tell the tribune, you know, we got to get out of this. And we live in the same framework as Paul. After Christ's resurrection, before his return. And God continually does much more than we can ask or think. Believer, if you're a believer, your soul will live in the presence of God forever because of Jesus. And, and let me just say this. If, you're, if your eternal destiny is covered, then everything else in this life is too. You might not always get delivered. You, you might die a horrible death. You might have your body torn apart by cancer and, and, and die. But, you, but and Jesus has us pray, Matthew 6, 13, deliver us from evil, right? But you might not get delivered from evil in this day, on this earth. But if you're a believer, your soul is covered for eternity. And God can rescue you from temptation. Some of you are like, ah, the temptations are too hard and I just keep on succumbing to it. I don't think he can rescue me from temptation. Well, 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 7 tells us this. If he, God, rescued righteous Lot, in 2 Peter 2, 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. One of the first verses I learned when I was a brand new believer back in 1982 was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape also that you can endure it. Did you catch that? God will provide a way of escape, an exit, a rescue. But that way will involve your active cooperation. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Literally, don't go back to sin. God knows he delights to help you, but don't go back. Think about it. Let's just say you're on your computer, and you're about to go view some things that you know you shouldn't view. God's not going to fry your computer to keep you away from it. You, know, in, you need, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to say no to that sin. Let's say you're about to make a decision that is going to ruin your marriage or ruin your family. God is not just going to like airlift you out of there. You have to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, indwelling in you, say no to that sin. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as, as we begin to close here, and I want you to see something. We saw last week, in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, the internal struggle that Paul and his companions were going through as they dealt with such strong persecution. But also we saw the great comfort that God gives his people. But it goes beyond comfort. I want you to see 2 Corinthians 1, verses 9 through 11. Because Paul goes on. He says this, What we went through was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This ongoing hope because of ongoing help. And then Paul says to the, to the church, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So he's saying God's gonna use your prayers, people. But the, here's the body of Christ once again. Pray for us. 
that we need to pray for each other, that we would say no to temptation in the power of the Spirit, that we would pray for each other, that we would realize we cannot do this alone. And here you have four aspects of God's rescue, what God does for his people in Christ. Satan hatches this sinister plot. Jesus is our sensitive relative. God enacts a sovereign rescue, and he rescues his people from Satan, from sin, from hell, and he can, over and over again, rescue his people from temptation. And that takes our cooperation. And remember this, if God rescues you in this life, it is to further his work in and through you. It's for no other reason but to further his work in and through you. And that you need to realize you are invincible until the moment that Jesus has ordained to call you home. I love how Paul says it. He will yet deliver us. Think about what Jesus has done. Think about even the similarities between Jesus and Paul. You see the things Paul went through and and they're similar to what Jesus went through. Both Jesus and Paul stood trials before the Sanhedrin. Both were prisoners in the Fort Antonia. Paul said, Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And boy, did he. Paul went through the same kind of things Jesus did, but the similarities stop. Paul was rescued out of the hands of the Jews. Jesus wasn't. Paul was rescued by 470 soldiers. Jesus could have called down myriads of angels. He didn't. To rescue us by his blood. And you know the most supernatural rescue happens again and again and again. God saves a lost sinner from the power of Satan, from the power of sin, from eternity in hell, and from earthly temptations as we walk by the power of the Spirit. Because God rescues his people so that they may be free to be used for his purposes. If this is you today, you've been chosen in Christ, justified, sanctified, being sustained by him, transformed in Christ, and and one day fully glorified, fully rescued. These are the things Paul knew so he could rest anchored in Christ. And so must we. So can we. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you in, in your mercy in rescuing us so that we might be free to be used for your purposes. Thank you, Lord, for not only the birth of Christ, but his life and his death and his resurrection and his present exaltation and his imminent return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.